you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. I, I meant to mention this earlier and totally forgot. Um, there's a guest card in the seat in front of you, which you have probably noticed already. What you may not have known is on the back of that is a prayer card. And so um, uh, if you have just a prayer request, a prayer need, anything you'd like to share with us that we could pray with you uh, or, or any way we can pray for you, uh, if you'd fill this out, you can either drop it off at the info center after service or you can hand it directly to me. You can even drop it in our, uh, our offering or giving box. Uh, any one of those, it will find its way uh, to me or to the staff and, and we would love to, to pray with you and, and follow up with you on, on things as well. So just wanted to make you aware of that. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if, as a reminder, if, if you don't own a Bible, we would love to put one in your hands. Again, you just stop by the info desk at the conclusion of service, and we'd love to, to put one of those in your hands. In the meantime, uh, the, the verses will be on the screen here in just a minute, unless our software crashes like it already has this morning. So it's just been one of those mornings, I'm just going to warn you. So it might come off the rails, all right? Um, so I've, I've been in pastoral ministry for about 10 and a half years now, um, eight and a half in a previous church, about two years here, and that is long enough for me to know that uh, I, I've lost count of how many times I've heard, uh, the, it's, it's, it's wisdom, but uh, never compare your church to another church. All right, that's, uh, I, I've lost count of how many times I've read that or heard that said. Um, you know, it's wisdom, not only for those in ministry, church leaders, but I would say it's ministry or it's, it's encouragement and wisdom for you. Right? There is no better way to either be uh, discontent or to be prideful than to look around at what others have or do not have compared to what you have or do not have in your church. And so, um, with that said, I have a confession to make. And that is that any time I feel even remotely discouraged about uh, the church, and, and not just this church, right? You guys are great. You guys are awesome. Um, anytime I've ever felt just discouraged about the church, uh, I go back and read 1 Corinthians. And I compare my church to the church in 1 Corinthians because that place was a mess. Okay? If you have never, uh, if you've never read 1 Corinthians, uh, in, in that letter alone, uh, Paul addresses all kinds of issues uh, that have sort of plagued the Corinthian church. Uh, he, he addresses a kind of like spiritual immaturity that has led to uh, jealousy and tensions and strife and uh, grievances or even filing lawsuits against one another. Um, he even goes on and in part of his letter, he, talked, he, he addresses this issue of immorality that in, in Paul's words, right, there was immorality among the church members that was not tolerated even among pagans in the church. Let me, if, if you don't know what that means, translation, there was people, or there was things going on in the church that people far from God would look at and be like, oh, that's, that's too far. You've crossed the line with that one, right? I mean, there's, there's some, some devious things, right? Now, now you see why I feel strangely encouraged when I compare my church to the church in Corinth, right? I'm like, Hey, you know what? We're, maybe we're doing all right. Okay, maybe we're, maybe we're doing all right. Um, 
So, like, like for all the talk, I, I see this a lot too, just the stuff that I read. For all the talk about, hey, we need to get back to the first century church. Like, have you read the Bible? Like, the first century church was a dumpster fire, right? And listen, here's what's encouraging. Like, you, you should be encouraged by this. Even though the church in Corinth was a, a hot mess, Jesus loved the church in Corinth. Right? He, he loved them enough not to just kind of be like, all right, you guys wipe you out. we got to start over. No, he, he sends Paul along, and Paul's addressing these things in his letters. We have two of those letters. There's actually another letter that we don't have recorded for us. Maybe it was just so heinous that God's like, nobody needs to know about that one. All right, it, it might have been rough. But um, here, here's where I want you to, to be encouraged, is that even though uh, the church in Corinth was a mess, Jesus loved the church in Corinth. Because Jesus loves his church. Right? That should encourage you. It encourages me. Man, when I, I look around and see the, the mess that's going on in the, the church today, like even in the mess, Jesus is still working to, to build and, and redeem and grow and, and sanctify his church because Jesus loves his bride. Right? Jesus doesn't walk out on his bride. Yeah, she's got some baggage. Right? Got some issues. Probably needs to see counseling. Okay? But Jesus loves his church. He loves his bride. So uh, that was good news for the first century. That's good news for the, the, the 21st century. But maybe the most pressing issue at the church in Corinth uh, was the issue of division. Right? In the uh, he, the here's how Paul begins his life. He, he gets through the, the introduction, you know, kind of the greeting and whatnot. Uh, and in verse 10 of chapter 1, straight to the point, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Right out of the gate, Paul's like, here's, here's issue number, like before, before he even got to like the stuff that pagans was said was too far he's like hey we got to deal with the division right so he picks it up in chapter one he circles back around in chapter three and talks about it and so I think this is probably the most pressing concern on, on Paul's mind in in the church in Corinth uh, and, and in keeping with kind of the comparison between the church in Corinth and the church today I would contend that, that division is one of the biggest issues among churches today in the church is just this issue of division. Um, and so tangible examples. All right, let's get it out of the ethereal and into the, the real world. Um, let's just get controversial, shall we? It's a new year and I'm feeling frisky. So I got to be careful. Though. I have a boss now. So um, Just rewind the clock and go back to 2020 and think about everything that, yes, the world faced, but then like in the context of the church, right? It started with a global pandemic, all right? And as difficult as that was to adjust to in, in everyday life, like even in the church, man, it just complicated things all the more, right? Because on, you've got... Some people that said, if you gather as a church, you are reckless, 
You are irresponsible. You are inconsiderate of your neighbor. That was one argument. The other argument was, if you don't gather as a church, you are a coward and you are giving in to fear. And those people sat next to each other on a Sunday morning. Right? That created a very real tension. Like It was really a no-win situation for anybody that had to make any sort of decisions about what the church would and, and wouldn't do. Right? And then on the heels of that, you've got uh, all the, the racial reconciliation and, and, and all those things that were going on. Some people uh, said that the church was uh, not saying enough and needed to be doing more. Some people were saying that the church was doing too much and they need to just leave cultural stuff alone and preach the Bible. And, and again, those people, differing opinions, sat next to each other on a Sunday morning. All right? And then if all that weren't enough, you get to the end of the year and we have just a joyous presidential election. Right? Where, again, you've got... In the church, you've got some people that would say, if you vote Democrat, there is no way you can consider yourself a Christian. And then over here, there's people that would say, if you vote Republican, specifically if you vote for Donald Trump, there is no way that you can consider yourself a Christian. And then even the people in the middle weren't safe, right? Because if you're in the middle, it's like, you know, if you vote for anybody other than the main two candidates, you're just throwing away a vote. And good Christians, we, we don't throw away our votes. So you better choose this day who you will serve. You see what I'm saying? Like, these are people that sat next to each other on a Sunday morning and just division in this polarizing climate that we, we live in. And so I, not only was it... I mean, here, let me do this. Let me reel it back in a little bit so we're all on the same page. I love you enough to be really blunt. Okay, I don't particularly care what your opinions are on any of those things. Because my goal is not to tell you who's right, who's wrong. I'm just wanting to highlight the division that existed in the first century church still exists today. It's the same issue, just with some different subject matter. right? And so, with that in mind, though, the church of Jesus Christ is called to unity. We see it here in Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians. If we were to kind of do a survey of all the different letters written to churches in the first century, in several of those letters, you would see unity being a theme that, that Paul or Peter or whoever's writing the letters is trying to, to get the church to understand that, that you are to be united. And we could even go beyond that. We could, uh, if we had time, we could look at Jesus' words. Right? In, in John 13, where he says that, hey, here's how the world's going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Or Jesus' longest recorded prayer in John 17, the thing he prays for his followers is that they would be one. And so unity is a big deal to the church, to those who consider themselves followers of, of Jesus. And here's why I think there's such a high premium on unity is, is because it might be the most powerful sort of physical, tangible, apologetic, or, or evidence for the power of the gospel. Right? Because you think about what the church is, what it should be. People from different uh, 
backgrounds, different stories, different histories, different pasts, different sort of socioeconomic levels, uh, different ethnicities, people from a variety of different backgrounds that all gathered together week after week to worship Jesus as king. Right? I mean, we, we live in a world that, where it's like, if, if someone's not like you, don't, doesn't think like you, then you cast them off, right? You cancel them. You push them to the, to the margins. And then the, the Church of Jesus Christ says, like, no, we're going to be from a lot of different backgrounds. We're going to probably think differently on a lot of different things. But at the end of the day, the thing that's most important that we center our lives around is the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's what the church is. So unity is, a, is really important to, to the church, which is why we're going to spend a few weeks talking about unity from some different, sort of different angles, different perspectives. At least, at least that's our plan, as we just talked about. Maybe the Lord would have something different for us, but that's where we're going to, that's where we're going to start. So back to where I had you turn earlier, 1 Corinthians 4. Um, we're going to just work through a few verses at a time. Let me, let me give you a little bit of context here. It will kind of help us, I think. Um, the, the issue that Paul addresses, the, the, the disunity and, and division, was centered primarily around uh, some in the church in Corinth said, hey, we follow Paul. Right? He, Paul's our guy. Right? Then there were some who would say, we follow uh, this man named Apollos, who is a gifted, eloquent teacher of of the law, right? He was, he was a gifted teacher, right? And there's some that said they followed Cephas or, or Peter. So you kind of got these three sort of like big time ministry leaders, right? Like, these guys are notable. Uh, and in the, the Corinthian church, it kind of said like, I'm with him, I'm with him, I'm with him. And, and it created this division among them. And so uh, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is in verse one, right? First Corinthians four, verse one. Paul says, this is how one should regard us. So again, he's talking about himself, Apollos, Cephas, or, or Peter. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants and stewards. Right? That's how he says that, that he himself, Paul, and Apollos, and Peter should all be regarded. Right, now, we, we don't have the time to go into like an in-depth word study of, of what it means to be a servant, what it means to be a steward. Uh, but here's what they both have in common. Is that they're both accountable to someone else. Right? If you're a servant, you have a master. If you are a steward, it means someone has entrusted something to you for you to manage for a while. But ultimately, you will report back to them. And so Paul and Apollos and Peter, for all of their uh, fame and notoriety and for all of their giftedness, Paul says, here's how you should think of us as servants and stewards, as, as men who are accountable to a higher authority than just us. Right? The, the buck doesn't stop with, with us. We answer to, to someone else. Right? They, they, they reported to a master. So, so in effect, Paul is telling the church in Corinth, like, hey, this issue of division where you're saying, like, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Peter. It's like, hey, you need to be looking beyond us because, like, we're not the end of the line. 
Right? You need to be looking beyond us, following not us, but the one that we are striving to follow. And that was Jesus. Right? In the, this same letter, later on in, in chapter 9, Paul writes, you know, he's continuing his letter to the Christians there in Corinth, and he, he tells them, uh, actually it might be chapter 11, I don't know, can't remember off the top of my head. Either way, regardless, Paul says to them, hey, be imitators of me, but only in so much as I am an imitator of Christ. Right, so Paul's saying, hey, you got to look past it. It's not about following me. It's not about following Apollos. It's not about following Peter. This is about following Jesus. Like, that's, that's what we're doing here. And so if we're tracking with Paul, right, we're talking about division and, and disunity. One of the ways to diffuse uh, division and disunity is to follow Jesus first. Follow Jesus first. Or, or let me say it another way. You should never hitch your wagon to someone whose name is not Jesus Christ. Right? When it comes to, to your involvement in the church, you, like, here's what I'm going to tell you. I, I don't like to make guarantees, but here's what I'll guarantee you. At some point, you, you, you put all your eggs in the, in the basket of someone not named Jesus, right? You follow a specific pastor or a specific person, maybe another member of the church. You're like, I'm with them. I'm with them. You put all your eggs in that basket. Here's what I'm going to let you know. We're going to let you down. I, I, I'm going to let you down at some point. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. Right? I'm going to say something you don't agree with. I'm going to do something that maybe you're like, mm, no, I would have done it differently. Right? And that's the case for all of us. You, you follow someone that, whose name is not Jesus Christ. If that's like, I'm with that guy, and he's not named Jesus, he will let you down. Right? He's going to drop the ball at some point. And so what... Paul is calling us to is to, hey, don't, don't follow a, any mere human being because, listen, humans are fallible, right? We sin. We don't see things clearly all the time. We misinterpret and misread things. We make poor decisions. We execute poor judgment. We just do. And, and then what happens if you've, because we've, listen, we've definitely seen this in the political world, you put all your eggs in one basket and then that person does something stupid, you're like, well, let's see, how can I defend that person? You know? This is why Paul said, hey, don't follow anyone that isn't named Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus first, right? Everyone not named Jesus is just gonna let you down. So just, I just wanna save you some discouragement and pain, right? Follow Jesus Follow Jesus first. And, and here's what I think. If we were all united around this idea that Jesus alone is the one that we follow, I just think that would eradicate a lot of sources of tension and argument and division and disunity in the church of Jesus Christ. All right, so follow Jesus first. But let's, let's keep moving. Jump down to verse 3. 
Right, here's what, what Paul writes. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So what you got Paul doing here is he's defending his ministry a little bit, not in the sense of trying to like elevate it in comparison to Apollos' ministry or um, Peter's ministry, but, but what he's doing is he's just acknowledging that, that both he, both Paul, and his ministry will ultimately be accountable to the Lord, not the court of public opinion. Right? So, like, this is complete conjecture, so I acknowledge that up front. I'm inclined to believe that uh, one of the things that made Paul's ministry so powerful, so profound, so successful, if you can use that word. I, I hate to use the word successful in a ministry context, but I think you know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm convinced that one of the things that, that made Paul's ministry so powerful is that he, he realized and like really believed um, that he was accountable only, ultimately, not, not only, but ultimately to the Lord. Right? That, that he didn't have to defend his ministry to anyone else. He didn't have to like answer all his detractors. He's like, hey, the Lord's the one who called me into this. I'll answer to him. Right? He, he Paul, uh, he just wasn't, he just wasn't concerned about making sure that everyone was happy. Right? He just wasn't. Right? In fact, um, later on in, in, this, in Paul's letter, there's this kind of section where he goes on and talks about his ministry to some of the other uh, people, you know, his, as, as his ministry went and he went to different places and preached the gospel. And he talks about how he sort of would change his ministry philosophy or change his approach depending on who he was trying to share the gospel to. In other words, Paul wasn't scared to change things up. You want to make some church folk mad? Change things up. Right? You change things up. That's when you discover like where idolatry really exists. You know? Was that too on point? Um, and Paul's just like, I became... Here's, here's what Paul... Let me, let me give you his words. You don't need mine. You need his... He says, I do it all. I change my approach. I change my philosophy. I change my, I, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Right? He was not discouraged by his detractors. He didn't feel the need to defend his ministry towards his detractors. His aim was ultimately not to please them, not to get their approval, but to please the one who had called him into this ministry so powerfully in the first place. So, now what does that mean for us? Right, because we look at that and we're like, well, yeah, of course Paul can do that. He's Paul. He wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. 
He's got some clout. And what does that mean for me, though? Um, and, and here's what I would say. There is a freedom that comes when God's opinion is the one that matters most. Right? There's just a freedom to that. There's a freedom to you as, you as you fulfill what the Lord's called you to. There's a freedom in even leading the church when, when I know that, that ultimately I'm going to report back to the Lord for how I steward, stewarded the, the church that he entrusted to me. <clears throat> There's a freedom that comes when God's opinion matters the most, right? And because if God's opinion is what matters most, then, then I'm freed up from having to meet your expectations. Uh, you're freed up from having to meet the, get the approval of, of someone else, right? And listen, I'm, this, is not, this is not a license to just be a jerk and not care what, about what anybody else thinks. It's not, it's not what this is at all. If anything, if anything, when God's opinion, God's judgment is what matters most, then I'm freed up to love you, to serve you, regardless of what you think of me. Right? So it's, it's not a license to just go rogue and be like, I'm going to do what I want. Right? Only God can judge me. Right? That, that's not what, what Paul's saying here. That's not the point. Right? But, but the point is, at the end of the day, right, what, what I say about you doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, what you say about me doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, whether you're accepted or approved by the people you sit next to doesn't really matter. Now, now I hope as a church we would want to work to be accepted and approved by one another. But at the end of the day, like, it's not about what anybody in this room says about you that will matter. It's what does God say about you? Right? If, you're, if you are genuinely striving and to, to love God, to do what he's called you to do, to live in obedience to his word, right, then, then you shouldn't be that concerned when, when people come and say, hey, I've, I've, got, some, I've got some issues with the way, you're, the way you're doing things. Again, if you're striving to live in obedience to God's word, right? Um, and here's the other thing about God's judgment. Right? If God's the one who judges me, if I'm more concerned about God's opinion of me and God's judgment of me, of, of me than, than anyone else's judgment of me, and I keep saying me, but I'm hoping you're putting this, like, seeing it through your own eyes too. Right? If, if I'm most concerned about God's judgment and God's opinion of me, then I'm going to be far more critical about myself than I am of you. you right? I mean, to know that, that one day, all of us, to know that one day you're going to stand before the just judge of the universe who sees everything, who knows everything, who, who will bring everything that was dark into the light, everything that was covered, he'll bring it out, uh, out of hiding into the open. And to know that you're going to stand before God one day for every action, every word, every thought, every deed, every, every motive of your heart. I would hope that, that that causes us to turn inward and be far more concerned about our own lives and our own hearts than we are about going on a witch hunt to look for what's wrong with other people. Right? Because 
At the end of the day, God's the only one that's going to judge you. The only one that's going to judge me. All right, so it felt heavy. Let's move on. All right? Verses 7 and 8. Paul goes on, he writes this, for, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. A little sarcasm from Paul, I like it. Right? And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. So, Pause on Paul here for a second. If you go to the book of James, half-brother of Jesus, uh, James talks about the things that causes quarreling and fights uh, among us, uh, and he points it to this reality that we have unmet desires. Right? Usually every, every source of division or tension or argument, um, whether it's in the church or in your home or just in life, usually goes back to the reality that you have some sort of desire that's unmet. Right, something that you want that you don't have, something that you feel like you deserve that you're not getting. Uh, you, you think this should be done that way and that should be done this way, but that's not the way it's played out. Right? And, and that creates division and tension and quarreling uh, and fighting. And so here what Paul's doing is he's saying, hey, let's, let's take a step back for a minute. Take a step back and consider, remember that all that you have all that you have came from God first. Right, which is what James also says in his letter. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above. It, it comes from God. And so Paul here, again, addressing sort of these divisions and intentions, he's like, let's take a step back for a second. All of you, anything that you have came from God. Even these men that you are divided over, myself, Apollos, Peter, like we... We are gifts to the church because God gave us to the church. It all points back to God being the one who, who gives. Right? And so um, even, listen, even the, the gospel that, that these men preached, right? that gospel, it may have came through them, but it wasn't from them. It was from God. Right? God who loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him has eternal life. Right? It came from a, a kind and gracious God. And so here, here's, I think, one of, the, one of the ways that we squash division and arguments and infighting and, and any of those things is by just being constantly reminded that our deepest need has already been met through the life of death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your deepest need is not just to get your way. Your deepest need is not to, uh, to get what you think you deserve. Your deepest need is not to have things play out the way that you think they should play out. Your deepest need, my deepest need, is to be reconciled to a holy God. Because our sin has separated us from this holy God. Right, so our, 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 my deepest need is not to have everyone agree with me. My deepest need is not to have everyone approve of me. My deepest need 
is to be reconciled to the God who sent his son to die on the cross for my sins. That's your deepest need. Right? And so Paul, Paul's talking about division, disunity. And, and putting division, putting disunity to death oftentimes begins with finding contentment in Jesus Christ alone. Because practically, if I think my contentment rests in this getting done or this need being met or, or this desire being fulfilled, then I'm always going to be fighting to make sure that, that I get mine, right? If I think that, that I'll be content once I get my way in this, or uh, we could play that out a million different ways. If you think contentment rests in XYZ being fulfilled, then it's just striving after the wind, right? If, if we would really believe, like, like really believe, that in Jesus Christ, we have everything we need. I, I just think, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I just think if we really believe that, like in our guts, like that would, that would just squash so much division, so much arguing, so much fighting, right? Because Jesus is our deepest need, right? He has satisfied, fulfilled our deepest need. So here's what I want to, here's how I want to kind of land the plane a little bit today. I want to give you three questions to kind of help you consider some of these things that we've talked about, maybe apply them in your own life. Or, right? I, I know that sometimes, I like, I don't know how you are. I have to process things when I hear them. I need a little bit of time. And so like, I don't think it's always fair to be like, all right, here's what you've heard. Here's the response time. You have three to five minutes to figure out how God has called you to respond while the band plays a song at the end. Now, by all means, if you want to come forward here in a minute and pray and talk, I would love to do that, okay? But I want to give you just some things to, to take with you. Maybe write them down if you're a note taker. Also, if you're a note taker and you try to follow me, I'm sorry. That must be awful, okay? Three questions. Here's the first one. Who are you following? Who are you following? It's a, it's a good and right question for all of us. But I want to ask specifically those of you who are here week in and week out, like this is what you do, which I'm kind of looking across the room. I think that's most of us in here. Right? Who, are, who are you following? Because I think it's, it's really easy to kind of convince ourselves that, yeah, of course I'm following Jesus. Right? And, and yet, Maybe that's not always the case because our hearts are really deceptive like that. So I follow your hearts, really terrible advice. But that was free. That wasn't in my notes. Um, so a good way to kind of assess or, or diagnose, okay, who am I really following? Uh, is just by answering another question. That's really simple. I think I've asked you guys to consider this question before. Why are you here? Now, if you're, <laughs> if you're a guest this morning, you're like, well, that was... I'm here because someone invited me. Great. I'm, you get a pass this morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm thrilled you're here. Uh, I hope you'll come back. I hope I haven't scared you away. Um, but if you're, if you're here, like week in and week out, why are you here? Are you here uh, to, to please or appease someone sitting around you? Right, to get your spouse off your back? Don't look at them if that's the case. 
Are you here um, because it's just kind of the mindless routine? It's just what you do every week. You just, just go to church. I'm not saying there's anything bad with routines, but I'm just asking you to consider, like, why do you actually come here week in and week out? Right? Is it because you're just on the rotation to serve this week? Got to go to church because I got to play an instrument or volunteer in the nursery. Like, like why are you here? Is it because our, our band is pretty awesome and Zach has a buttery smooth voice? Is it, is it because the scrawny guy on the stage is strangely intriguing? Like, why are you here? Because if the answer to that question is anything other than to worship God, to worship Jesus... Then, then that should be cause for some, some self-evaluation. And I would say even some repentance. Because we gather here week in and week out to worship Jesus, to follow Jesus first. So who are you following? All right, and then here's, here's the, the second question, all right? Whose opinion matters most to you? Whose opinion matters most to you? Are you striving for the approval of man to be affirmed, accepted, kind of, kind of horizontally by others? Or are you striving first and foremost to please God? Now listen, those are not always mutually exclusive, okay? It is possible to strive to please God, to live in obedience to Him, and for others to affirm you in that. In fact, I would say if no one affirms you in that, like that should be a red flag. Okay, but, but you're never going to please everybody. Jesus himself said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Right? If, if everyone's happy with you, then you're probably doing something wrong. But, but whose opinion matters most? Okay, and, and, and again, this is not a license to just disregard like, the opinions and the voices of others all the time. I, the church is God's gift to his people to kind of keep us out of the, uh, the ditches on either side of the road, right? But you're never going to make everybody happy all the time. So, so whose opinion matters most to you, right? And, and I hope, I hope it's the Lord's. And I hope that knowing that, both, both gives you a, a kind of freedom to just continue in what the Lord's called you to. And I also hope it fills you with sort of a reverent fear because one day you'll stand before him and answer. So whose opinion matters most to you? And then here's the third one, right? Where do you find contentment? Like, like wh what is it that, that really satisfies you at a soul level? What are the deepest desires of your heart? Because what I'm going to tell you is, is that the real deepest desires of your heart will not be satisfied by getting more of what you want or getting your way more often than you do now. That will not satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Or you can strive after those things, but 
you're never going to get everything you want, and you're never going to get your way all the time. So, like the, right, you, the, the deepest desires of your heart, true contentment, lasting contentment, the kind of contentment that doesn't, that doesn't waver with the changing of, of seasons and circumstances, that comes from Jesus Christ alone. Right? Nothing else will satisfy those. And so, have you surrendered your life to Jesus this morning? Are you following Jesus first this morning? Have you, have you submitted your life to him and, and to his lordship? Right, have you, like, do you really grasp the reality that, that he has satisfied your deepest need, that he has saved you from or extends the, the invitation to save you from the, your biggest need, which is to be reconciled to God? I just said that really confusing. Right? He has satisfied your deepest need, which is salvation, to be reconciled to God. Right? And so um, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would say, like, come to Jesus. It's the only way that, that the deepest longings of your soul will be met. And, then, and here's the other thing. If you're here and you've been a Christian for years, I would just simply ask you, is Jesus what you treasure and value the most? Or have you kind of drifted into looking for that contentment somewhere else? Because it's only found in, in Christ. So I hope you'll consider these things this morning as we respond. I hope maybe you'll consider them in the days, uh, weeks ahead, right, as the Lord works on your heart. Um, so I'm going to pray for us this morning. Uh, again, if, if you want to come, if you need to, to have a conversation, if you need to to pray, would like someone to pray with you. If you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, to find contentment in Jesus, would love to have that conversation with you, whether it's here in just a moment as the band sings or whether it's after service. Uh, but, but we're going to close our time together this morning just by uh, praying and responding. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and... Lord, just grateful that you, uh, that you love your church. We're grateful that um, in, our, in our brokenness and in our, our sin and in our divisions at times, Lord, that, that you, don't, you don't leave us or cast us off, but you're, you're committed to seeing, um, you're committed to finishing the work that you've completed in us. And so that's what I pray this morning. I, um, Father, I, I pray that you would Show us what we're really following and that you would reorient our hearts and minds to follow you first. I pray, Father, that you would um, help us to, um, Lord, guard us from giving in to the fear of man or just trying to please uh, man or, or striving to be accepted and, and approved of by others. But, but may we make it our aim and our goal and our primary objective in life uh, to please you, Lord. Lord, you are the one who will ultimately judge us. And so, Lord, help us to live both in the freedom that comes from that, but also in the, the, the reverent fear that should come with that as well. And then, Father, I um, Lord, just pray that we would find our contentment in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us where we've sought to fulfill our desires and find contentment in 
and an infinite number of lesser things. And I pray that you would, again, we begin a new year and a new season here at Valley Creek. I pray that you would reorient us, our, our hearts and our minds, that we would find contentment in Jesus before everything else. And knowing that, that we would worship you because you have supplied our deepest need. And so, Father, I, I trust that you'll work by the power of your spirit in the lives of these men and women here this morning. Lord, help them to respond as you've called them to respond. Help, help me to respond as you've called me to respond. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.